0: Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, it's a follow-up part two of last week's story where Glenn Goro got me in the Beach Shack to interview me this time, so he made it a little bit different. So I hope you can uh, enjoy it. It pretty much talks about my friendships with the lifeguards and further on into my lifeguard career and also touching on some sports that I played. Later on in my years, and also ocean ski paddling. So sit back, have a listen to part two. I hope you enjoy it, but make sure you listen to part one, and then part two. So catch you very soon,
1: mate. There's a there's an old adage about that. It's um you know great leaders. The greatest of all leaders generally don't say too much, but when they do, it really means something. And uh, and that's how I've you know I've got to know you over many years now, and that's how you do operate. So when you do say something, people listen because it does mean something, and and and, and it adds great value. I mean, your conflict resolution, resolution skills are second to none. I mean obviously sorting all the stuff out with all the, the teams and the boys and the differences and the personalities, but also on the beach, you've got the family members attacking you when someone's injured or down or being resuscitated. You, you've got to put all these fires out everywhere. So your leadership skills and the way you've grown up in life, obviously get reflected in how you do everything day by day, mate. So for the young listeners that are listening, you know, they take a leaf out of Hobart's book and uh, become a great leader by, you know, keeping it simple. And when you do say something, make sure it has Great value and it means something. So, um, really, really good that uh, you said that, mate. Because even doing this podcast with you to get you to do this, to get you to open up and talk, has been, you know, it's been a, a work in progress for a while. And you know, and I don't know how humble you are. So, I'm glad you, you know, you're sharing some of your life with the listeners because everyone's asked me about this. You know, oh, someone's got to do Hoppo. We've got to get Hoppo on me. You know, the guy's got so much to talk about it. So here we are and uh, we're getting through some of it, mate. There's, there's still a fair bit to go. I've got some stuff I need to get through. <laughs> we'll, we'll laugh along, mate. Some of the funny stuff will come up towards the end. I'll get okay. you with those five questions and a few other things that you do <laughs> to all the, all the people you've done. <laughs> hey, mate, the, the, and, and on that, the Beach Shack podcast, you know, life's a beach, it is a bitch sometimes and, you know, how did that all come about? And give me an explanation of that, plus your favourite people you've had in the 100 or so episodes that we're at now.
0: Oh, look, the the, the podcast came about by, I suppose, listening to all the younger people down the beach and and the tough times they're having with, you know, whether it's social media or just their day-to-day, you know, work and, you know, kids just seem to be... not not growing up the same, I suppose, as what I had and, you know, as much as they are probably still having a great time, but it just seems a bit different this day and age than when I grew up and I thought, well, I've been rescuing and saving people in the ocean for so many years. The only way I can rescue and save people, you know, whether in a, they're down at a, at a time or they've got mental issues at the time or they're, they're struggling just in general, is to have a podcast get people on and interview them because everybody out there has a tough time no matter what in your life. It doesn't matter who you are, you'll go through a rough time. There's, there's you know, some obviously worse than others, but you, you will have a pretty down time. And I've got the, yeah you know, my profile plus being able to have access to do a podcast can really help a lot of people by getting everyone on, telling their stories. And I think over the 105 that, that I've done, a lot of people have come out with stuff that I don't even think they realised they were going to come out and say. And I remember, you know, I, I've interviewed you I've, I've, and, and some of the people I've interviewed you know personally and you have said to me that the stuff that they have said that you didn't even know.
1: Absolutely, mate. It's, um, it's you know, something comes to mind with it. You and, and, and here's some feedback for you because a lot of people listen to these podcasts and uh, they're very popular now. You know, it seems to be the way people get educated in some ways, but feedback that I get and people have listened to some of your interviews is, is that it's inspiring them to do better, right, and, and grow and, and get through tough times. And um, in particular, a couple of guys I play golf with, one said to me the other, other week, he said, mate, I listen to those podcasts that Hobbo does and I was going through a really bad time, bad divorce and things weren't right in the head. And I listened to that and I went home and I thought, you know what, I've got to, have got to fix this. I've got to, I've got to get better. There's other people that have got worse struggles, so I'm not so bad. So, mate, you're probably saving lives. You're probably doing things you don't even know indirectly through the podcast. So, you know, again, just another side of of Hoppo that that is is contributing to his community in in a very special special way, mate. Yeah. Fantastic program.
0: And, and that's good feedback to hear because that's why I'm doing it. You know, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm I'm doing it to try and help other people and you know, as you said, if, if, it, and obviously you're not going to hear everybody that listens to it, you're not going to hear their, their stories or it's actually helped them in some way in their life. But, you know, if it helps, yeah, one, two, three people. And as you said, the guy you play golf with, you know, it's helped him. Well, you know, that's great. It's a success of, you know, no different what we're trying to do on the beach and people come down, enjoy the beach, have a swim, have a surf, um, and then go home safe. Well, mate, what about this one? You talk
1: about having, you know, a safe day at the beach. But, Hoppo, your record of resuscitations stands out like no other. I mean, you've resuscitated the most people ever by any Australian lifeguard on record. And as you know, they're all captured. Um, you know, the Life Saving Australia capture it, the um, the Royal Life Saving Society capture it and recognise people for doing this sort of thing. You've had the most But, mate, there's a downside to all of this, and I'm going to peel off a few of your layers now. You know, all our first responders suffer from this. They usually remember the first thing that was really bad, so your first bad recess and then you suffer post-traumatic stress disorder from it for the rest of your life. Tell me about that, mate, and how you cope with all of that.
0: Yeah, you do, 100%. Um, I mean, I remember, if I think about the first one I ever had, I think it was a body retrieval. We get a lot of suicides... Um, at the Gap cause we cover the Gap and there's a lot off the golf course at, at North Bondi over the years and, you know, you never sort of forget those ones, uh, resuscitations, you know. So you can you always remember um, and it does take a toll uh, without you probably even realising and, you know, uh, there's guys I've worked with over the years sort of back in the 90s that, you know, a couple actually committed suicide over the last 10 years. And I always wonder whether that had something to do with the work that we did back in the 90s because back then was, you know, you you dealt with something like you said or a resuscitation or or a body retrieval and you basically just got a pat in the back, get on with it, uh, well done, get on with it, you know, go have a beer, so you go have a beer and and, and that'd be it, that'd be the end of the the story. But you never know. And you had that fear you wouldn't come out and tell someone that you were struggling with it because – it, which you would think that the, the people would say, well, you're, you're weak, you know, just just toughen up and get on with it. As you would have known yeah, back, back in in your day, it would have been the same. So now where I realise that we train physically uh, to do a rescue. So we train every part of our body, but we never train our brain. And we've got a program we've been doing the last four years, five years, where we bring in a psychologist, Dr. David said, and I've had him on, the podcast, and and we went through like we we're doing a session, and he's been really good for everybody at the beach, and, and it's basically now we're training our mind to when we get to that point, you get a resuscitation, you get a suicide, and how you deal with it, you're prepared to deal with it when it happens, not wait till it happens and then try and fix it after the, and and that's where I think people struggle because it's after it's happened, but we're now doing it leading into uh, these major incidents, and also. People say, oh, when you do a resuscitation, if you get everybody back, that's a success. But when we've been doing the training, with David said, that um, you can still get things happening down the track, even because it's so traumatic when you're dealing with a resuscitation. You can still have problems, even though the the resuscitation is a success. So that's something that... um, I didn't realise and we didn't realise until we started to sit down and, and work through this. And, and now the guy, they come out and just say whether they're having trouble or not having trouble. No one's got that fear anymore or embarrassment of, look, I'm doing it a bit tough. They speak up and and, and say, you know, w- what's going on? And, you know, they they speak to David. They can go do that separate. So it, it's really been, been good and it's totally different. I probably wish that was around back in the 90s.
1: Yeah, I think all the first responders do, mate, because all the agencies operated the same way. It was have the beer, go home. But where, where the damage is done, it's early in, in your life and then later when you either retire or move into another employment, it starts to creep up on you when you least expect it. And then the other factors trigger it, you know, having nightmares and all those things. And, you know, anyone listening we just that's struggling with that, we you know, strongly suggest that they go and talk to a friend or go and see their doctor or call Lifeline. There's, there's plenty of... Things in place now to help everybody, which is which, which is great, mate. He um something that uh, sort of popped up on I didn't know, but in 2006, mate, you were lifeguard of the year. That that's like um you know a model on GQ or uh, you know doing something <laughs> pretty fancy. <laughs> model, lifeguards, you know, everyone looks at our lifeguards, male or female, and they are somebody that's idolised, you know, and the, that's going to protect me when I go for a swim and so on. So lifeguard of the year, tell me about that.
0: Yeah, mate, that was a, a, an honour. I mean, it's always great to get, you know, an award from your peers, voted by your peers. It's, you know, out of your hands, you know, you're not expecting to get something like that. And I suppose everything I had done in, in from the, I suppose from the 2000 Olympics where I sort of went into more of a management role with the lifeguards, had more of a say on on structuring how it's uh, the lifeguards were going to go on professionally. So, yeah, it was great uh, 2006 to get that award and, it's a privilege i i think that's you know not that we're in the lifeguard industry to, to all do that but that's to me we do what we do and that's a bonus that's something that you know your peers vote for you and I, I think um there's nothing better than people in your own industry and and as you know with triathlon when people vote to uh give you awards it's 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 a great moment and something that you always treasure forever
1: mate it 's funny because it does bring back your memories and you don't realize in a particular field just how much you actually do I mean everything just slips to the keeper in the back of your head and you don't think about it so I guess you know having that award made under your belt all I can say is congratulations on that that's a that's just outstanding and look it's led to other things in your life look at uh what you're doing at the moment you're a massive giver to communities and you're doing the float program at the moment you know and we've just had a drowning epidemic and now two thousand and twenty three it's off to a Terrible start with everywhere. We've had them down here at Cronulla. I think we've had three or four down here, fatal drowning. So, you know, float, mate, tell us all about it and where people can go and help and donate and and how where it's at at the moment.
0: Oh, look, I mean, you know, float to survive Australia is what we're we're uh, promoting. And, and I suppose it comes down to, like you said, I, I've been watching people's behaviour in the water for 30 odd years. And We've always said, you know, the preventive messages of swim between the flags, you know, when you go to the beach, go with friends and, and, and have someone with you when you go in the water and, you know, they're great preventive messages, but the problem is there's only a certain amount of red and yellow flags around Australia beaches, you know, probably about 10% of, of beaches and they're only the main popular beaches of metropolitan cities that have got the red and yellow flags and people are drowning all over the place, and, and not only ocean, I think 60% of drownings are inland, so there's no red and yellow flags inland, you know, whether it's a dam, a river, a backyard pool. So when we sat down and thought about it, we thought, well, and I watch people in a rip, and, and if you float and do nothing, you know which direction the water's taking you. That's the main problem. The main problem people do is when they're in trouble, can't stand up. They start panicking and want to swim swim back to where they started. Wherever they went in is where they want to go back to, which one hundred percent of the time, straight back into the rip. So we're just going to change people's behaviour to go. Okay, I can't stand up; I'm getting pulled away from the beach. Just go with the flow of the water, because ninety percent of the time, it'll pull you across the sandbank or where the waves are breaking. Because when I was a kid, Dad used to take me out in the rip um, on my surfboard, which would take me to the lineup. I'd catch a wave back in, and then get back in the rip to go back out again, because it's easier to get back to the lineup. So most rips are pulling across to where the waves are breaking and, and uh, pushing you back into the shore. So it's just quite simple. And when we started putting people in rips to get experience, young kids will jump in. They're a bit nervous to start with. But once they do it once, they run back down the beach, jump in. It's like a ride for them, like a water ride. Um, you know, rips don't pull you under, all these mists, you don't end up out to New Zealand, things like that. It's just to change that behaviour of people, you know, and, and uh, always laugh when I hear people say you'll end up, you know, miles out to sea or you get caught in a rip, you'll end up out to sea. Well, it just doesn't happen. And, and, you know, most of our rescues or probably I reckon 95% of our rescues are all 10 to 20 metres from the shore. I can't remember the last time I did one out where the board riders were. So, you know, it, it's something that we just need to, to change. And at the end of the day too at Bondi, well, you physically can't fit everyone in the flags anyway. Even if you put flags, you know, we've got two sets of flags, but impossible to fit, you know, 25,000, 30,000 people. And I'm assuming it would be the same along Cronulla. Like so there'd be days there you wouldn't fit everybody in the flags anyway. They're going to go swim elsewhere. So I think the best way is, is if people float. And it's been proven. There's been stories um, down in Melbourne and Victoria, the four that were on their paddle boards. They floated on their boards when they got blown away with the wind. 12 hours later they got rescued. So that's the other thing. That the longer you can float, the more chance you have of getting rescued as well. So that's the, um, the, the secret to it. And I think if we can get a national campaign and push the, the float to survive and, and get everybody, as soon as you're in any sort of distress or panic or you think you're going to be in some sort of trouble, just float and relax. And it saves your energy as well. You're not getting uh, – most people drown because, one, they try and swim. And two, they just get exhausted and can't keep themselves afloat. So, you know, when I hear people go, oh, they couldn't swim, that's why they drown. The majority of people that drown can swim to a certain extent, whether it's 25 metres, 50 metres, 200 metres. You know, once they get to their limit and they're not standing, that's when they panic and they start drowning. So hopefully uh, we can uh, keep the message going. And it's starting to get momentum, so you never know.
1: I the old learning to float used to be in every swim curriculum when you learned to swim in the old learn to schools in the sixties, and then it just disappeared. And that was the first sort of thing they taught you: just float on your back, take a big breath of air in, and balance, and then your feet would pop out of the water, and you just sit there. I still use it to this day, but it disappeared. So you, you know, you basically have now reinvented that whole concept and put it into you know into practice and it's working well it's it's gaining great momentum and you know we hope that you get some government funding and more more publicity and and again like we talked about earlier in the podcast you're saving lives Hoppe. you know we, you just can't put a yeah. figure on the amount of what you've done and what you are doing to help others so you know, again well done it's uh funny things you know Personal life, now, you know, we talk, We've talk. you've had a pretty good public life, I guess, and uh, had a lot of fun and whatever, but personal life, you know, you've obviously had your lows, you know. Do you want to share some of how you've had low times hit you and then how you've dragged yourself back out and got on with
0: it? Oh, yeah, look, I mean, we've all had low times. I had low times as well and, you know, whether that's through work or personal life and, and things like that, obviously marriages don't last and, you know, everyone gets... You know, caught up in all that, and and they can be quite traumatic as well. And you know, one thing leads to another, and then you know, with me, I suppose that you start my release. I suppose when I was down and out, is you start drinking, drinking more, and that's never a good scenario. And I remember the the probably the just briefly on the the biggest one was when. I was in a bad way, but I was drinking a fair bit and got ended up decided to move my car and got caught um, drink driving, you know, and that was probably the most embarrassing and, and, and disappointing thing that I'd ever done. And it shows that it doesn't, as I said before, it doesn't matter who you are. You, Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone does stupid things and everyone, you know, has a rough time in their life and, you know, going through a divorce and, having a, um, a business as well and trying to run a lifeguard service and, you know, there's a TV show. There's a lot of pressure that can be put on and um, you, everyone's got their breaking point and not seeing a way out of it, you know, and the problem with alcohol and, and also drugs. And people can rely on that because what it does, it takes that pain away. So the pain gets taken away and you feel good for that period. And then once you've, you know, the next day when you're, you're feeling shit and hungover and everything, it's it all comes back again. So it's easy for people just to start drinking again. And it keeps taking the pain away. But the problem is, is that that spirals out of control where then suddenly, you know, you could be drinking every day, then you're drinking during the day and it can just really get hold of you. And I, I can see how easy it is for people and I'm lucky I haven't got an addictive personality so I could control that and and, and what I did was, and lucky I had the athletic experience when I was younger because I just put myself back into racing, back into training hard. By doing that you feel good when you've done a training session and also when you're doing that you're either getting up early or training hard, then you're tired, you sleep at night you don't want to go drinking because you're, you're in that different mindset. So I was lucky to be able to to do that, but I can see how people could easily just go off the rails and and, and make it, you know, dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper till finally it might be too hard to get out of.
1: Self medication probably comes to mind with all of that. And that's how a lot of people do deal with it because they don't want to talk to anyone about it. They're embarrassed, um, especially people in public life as well, because, you know, their pressure's even higher there because everyone's also on the outside looking in and, oh, that can't be right. You know, that. Because they, when someone's good looking or healthy or, or well known, people don't perceive them as having any real problems in their life. But bottom line is, we're all we're all built pretty much the same. We're just different in the way we go about things and the way we look. And yeah, yeah. you know, as it's been commonly said, mate, the most interesting person in anyone's life is you yourself, and you need to take. Your, your interest in yourself. And if you do that, you can rebuild your life and set your research goals and start climbing those mountains again. And when you get, like I say, get to the top of one, there's another mountain and let's go again. And, you know, and you're getting through these tough times that the support networks are out there, you know, with mates and whatever and hearing your story, you know, going through that and um, trying to rebuild. It, it's a slippery slope, but, mate, look at it now and you look back and probably go, what was I doing? But now, you know, you're on the other side of it. And uh, thirty years on as a lifeguard, like when you think about that, thirty years as a lifeguard, man, you know, it's um, there's criminal sentencing that's a lot longer, shorter than that, mate. For you know, a <laughs> lot of things, <laughs> you have basically been married yeah, yeah. to married to the <laughs> beach, as yeah, well. So yeah. you know, that's a, that's in itself is an achievement. So you know, the low times are going to pop up, and you got to cope with that.
0: They're always difficult. They're always difficult to deal with, no matter who you are. So. But I think the other thing is in the public eye too, it's hard because people read about what's happened. So then when you see people look at you in the street, you think that you just think they're judging. Like I went through a period where I thought people were judging me and I didn't know them. They didn't know me and they probably wouldn't even even know who I was or what well, I was going through. But when someone just glances at you, you know, and you're walking down the street, once you're in that state, you think everybody knows everything – about your business and and they're all judging which is just basically only in your own mind
1: yeah well that's a perception mate and uh you know it comes about uh about from people what they perceive they see in you and what they know, they think they know but you know everyone has their demons and their fights and battles and uh, it's it's a matter of working through them and Getting support, helping each other out, mates ringing mates, girlfriends ringing girlfriends, and vice versa. Everyone just looking out, and uh, you know, it, it certainly, it certainly all helps. Hey, uh, something that sort of pops up, mate, ambassador roles. I, uh, we're talking about the high, the high times and whatever. I don't think I, I've got some pretty famous mates that, and mates that are very successful. <laughs> And I don't think I know anyone that's had the number of ambassador roles that you've had, and all for good <laughs> causes, you know, but Virgin Airlines, get ALA. I mean, what a great ambassador role that would have been going over to LA and doing all of that with all those great Australians and whole proof undies, mate. Hey, now now you're you know, you're hitting on good awesome <laughs> products. There's just too many to list. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the Logies, you would have been all the after parties and all that sort of stuff as well in your ambassador roles and obviously Bondo Rescue, you know. Well, the Logies are coming up. You guys nominated again?
0: Not sure yet but uh, because we had a year off of filming, so it goes on the previous year. So we might not this year, but, I mean, we did last last year get a a start and hopefully uh, it'll air this year, so we might get another start for the Logies, which is always good fun and, yeah, I mean the ambassador stuff's been been good. I like giving back, helping out. We've been doing stuff for the children's hospital at Randwick for, I think since nineteen ninety six. We've been going to there at Easter time and handing out Easter eggs to the kids, and that's something that's been going on for for decades. The undies one's funny. We that was my moulding days when I, I I got to do some. Uh, I think it was the Sydney Fashion Week, Melbourne Fashion Week, and it, it was Harry Steno and me. And we'd, we'd be doing uh, walking the catwalk in our undies that's uh that's quite intimidating i tell you but it was uh fun it was a a fun thing and you know how serious they all are the models when they walk down but they made us be funny and so we'd be laughing and waving and harry's be slapping us on the backside and things like that so we turned it up totally different to what people actually expected and you know people were cheering and yelling because they hadn't seen something like that it's all quite serious with the modeling world and yeah that was a bit of fun and all the other ambassador stuff is um, is um has been fun. I, li- I like giving back as well. I think if you've got a profile and and yeah, you've, you've put in a lot over the years, you need to um give back as well to, to, to people and, and help out as best you can.
1: You do have to give back, mate. You you just reminded me of uh, we did this fashion show, Four Undies, up at uh, Miranda Forum many years ago. I'm talking uh, mid-80s, late-80s, and they had a couple of bodybuilders there and, Greg Welsh and Chris South and a few other triathlon guys, and they all we all had to stand on the bodybuilders as they did their push-ups in our undies <laughs> in the backstage, so that they could build their arms and build up. So that when they went out on the stage, they'll bigger. And uh, you know, <laughs> so you can imagine that scene: bunch of blokes in the back of a stage, all in their underwear, and everyone's doing push-ups with a bunch of blokes sitting and laying on top of the bodybuilder. Anyway, you've just brought that back. It's, it's just, some things are tucked away in your head. Yeah, um, yeah maybe yeah. Other, other, <laughs> other roles, the project, 10U, 7 and 9 Networks, Nova, KISS, WSM. You know, you've had audiences of over 10 million in your career. It's incredible. And now you've got social media, which is just another whole area. <laughs> and, and, you're an influencer, you know, but you've also had your fair share of stalkers and uh You've had your rough shot, mate, where you got hacked and you had to shut it all down. Give us a give us an insight into that.
0: Yeah, I, I still don't know happened. Probably something I did stupid in there that I, I hit the wrong button or something. But yeah, I was probably I don't know up around the seventy eighty thousand mark of, of Instagram, and then one day just I, I lost control of it. But I could just see the numbers getting taken away, and someone different people were were owning it. It, it was like through like an Arab type country. Yeah, I just couldn't get it back. I, I tried to change passwords and, and do everything but just it just all kept disappearing and <laughs> so then what I had to start a new one, so I've kicked off a new one. But you know, I suppose it was a lesson. Maybe that's a lesson for me too, because everyone's so worried about, you know, how many followers they got and what they're doing and, and who's watching and following and and I suppose initially I was going, Oh shit, I've lost all these followers and But about a week later I sat down and thought, Well, at the end of the day doesn't really matter if I've got eighty thousand people following me, really. Like, what, what, what does, doesn't change me as a person? Doesn't change what I'm doing every day, anyway. So, what? It doesn't really make much difference. And then I started the new one. It started, you know, building with people following again, and and then I did a few activations for a few companies and and ambassador stuff. And when they came back, they said, "Oh." I think I it's around twenty something five thousand now, but because people they just started following me, the engagement was way bigger than when I had eighty thousand. Because they're all current and probably all engaging. Whereas over the whenever Instagram started, two thousand and twelve or thirteen, whatever it was. So all those years, majority of those people have probably dropped off engaging, even though they're still on there as following. And that even made me think then, well, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because when I've got 80,000, 100, a million people following, majority of them I don't even know. And they're watching what I do, but does it, does it, end of the day, does it really matter? You know? I mean, you've got your core group of friends. Um, I can't get on Instagram and I'm down, for an example, when I went through my tough time, no one on those followers on that Instagram were going to come and help me in my downtime. So the only ones that are going to go help you is your, is your close friends that you that you talk to outside of social media and they're the ones that are going to actually help you in your downtime. So it's sort of maybe it's a lesson for me that don't get so tied up in social media and who's got what followers and who's doing what and who's an ambassador for whoever or making whatever money, money for, for whoever and just be yourself, I think. I've everyone listening just. Just be yourself. Don't worry about everyone else. Everyone else, you know, other people are going to get good runs and, and, and look like they're doing great and, and and earn a lot of money. But they'll have a period of time that it won't be as good as that and then you'll get a good run. Everyone gets their good run as much as they get their bad run. So I think it's a matter of not getting too worried about it. I think the more you worry about other people, the more things don't happen for you. I think if you just focus on yourself, it's just funny, doors just seem to open, and that's what happened to me when I was in my down, dark period of my life. Once I started worrying about myself and training and competing and having goals for myself, everything else just fell into place. You know, my rela i, I met Karen. We ended up—we're married now. So my relationship, you know, I met someone that came good. I, work was getting better. I started picking up other jobs outside, like ambassadorships and things, and and it was wasn't from basically anyone else it's basically from me focusing on myself and trying to get myself into a space without worrying about anything else and and then things just came good so i think if you dwell on other people and and what they're doing and and i think it brings you down even more so not saying that that's easy to do it's still hard to do not seeing what other people are doing but i think that's the best way to try and get yourself out of any time that you're down and out yeah it's
1: a good point mate that uh you know you've, you the I got I'm retired as you know but I'm doing more than, probably now than I ever ever been and someone asked me when we were away on a charity walk recently uh, with Chapo and he was part of that and you know what are you what are you uh you doing now and I said oh, I'm managing a maniac and he said what do you mean by that and I said managing myself <laughs> And it's keeping me busy, and uh, you know. And I think that's probably the most important thing you have to do. And we talked about it, you know, earlier. But you do have to manage yourself, and you have to take an interest in yourself. And and if you fix yourself, and you spread the the message, people get inspired by that, and you know, especially if you're helping others and doing charity work and all that, and people get inspired, and then they do it, and it lifts their life up. And you know, you're having a, an amazing way of doing that hopper, you've got the, you know, the, all these different things that you're involved in. So it's all there for you to, you know, to take hold of it and, and do wonderful things. And, you know, I'm, everyone's so appreciative of all of the things that you and the Bondi Rescue guys do. I mean, Chapo and Reedy and, and uh, Harry's and Climo, and, uh, they've all come and helped us with charity work. And, and I'm moving on to that, you know, because one of the things we did a couple of years back was uh, we found a star in motorsport. And his name is Bruce Hopkins, Hopo, the, the <laughs> motor racing car driver. Came down, and did a couple of celebrity races, and in in, in his debut, he uh, Tell us a bit about how much fun you had with all of that.
0: Yeah, mate, that was um, that was great fun at Pheasant. with uh, well, Pheasant Wood there, the the, the racetrack. It was something that I, I'd never really done. Where I've driven a, a sort of a race car on my own, but it made so much fun. It's a matter of uh, learning on the the lines you've got to take and, you know, it's not like driving on the road where you think uh, oh, it's, it's, this should be pretty easy. It's, it's not as easy as what it looks. And I, I put my hat out to the, you know, your Formula 1 drivers and your, and your V8 drivers and what they do because, as you know, when we do the handicaps, it's the slowest to the fastest. So when we come in around those last couple of bends, it's quite tight <laughs> and people are, are bumping each other and, and trying to get through and it's uh, and you think about the the professional race car drivers they're doing that from the start to the finish um bumper to bumper so yeah it, it's it's such a great adrenaline rush and even after it you know driving home after you finish something like that you're still buzzing it's it's a, it's a great um great thing to do and and you know what I I think more people should try and do it and and after doing it I thought Young people should do it because when I was driving home, it felt like I had like ten minutes to make a decision to change lanes because we'd be driving so fast around the track. When you get back in your normal car and, and drive into the speed limit, it, it's it feels like you got forever. And I think young kids should learn that because I don't think they understand the speed and, and what to do when if something goes wrong. Whereas on that racetrack, especially when you got Mark McGwire bloody up your ass and Trying to knock you and spin you around off off the track.
1: He was all over that. He, he, that's why we gave him the car that already had the damage on it because we knew it was going to get returned damage <laughs> <laughs> with Sparkle thing He's running the ball up. It's it's funny you talk <laughs> about um, making decisions and one thing we found with the car racing and those um, those charities and celebrity drives as well as the learner driver program there at Pheasantwood Circuit was. Um, it was triggering peripheral vision and mirror use in the young drivers, and including yourself. So, like you say, you go up the freeway, you're now looking in all your mirrors, and you, you know, you're looking well ahead, and you're looking for safe places to go. It just triggers that automatically. You know, you can see you're looking forward, but you can see 90 degrees to your left and right. So it triggers all that, and that's that's what you would have ex- you would have experienced with all that. I guess the boys were a bit jealous about it because originally we tried to get Rudy to do it, and he was he was tied up with kids and. um when they found out how much fun you had, mate, with the second round, they were ringing up trying to get you pipped off so that they could get gigs, right? <laughs> so that's why we end up giving Climo the extra car. <laughs> but <shout laughs> really, they're all filthy, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, they're uh, they're all they're all chopping at the bit to try and get down there and uh, and uh, have a crack at it. But, Yeah, now it'd be good to um, get all the boys down. Um, have a go and uh, let's see how they go. And I think it'll be a bit harder for them than what they think,
1: it will be, mate. But I think we'll do a whole lifeguard Bondi rescue one. We'll have a like all the 12 cars, we'll all be you guys, and and you'll probably have to, you know, you're a defending uh podium holder, so you'll get a goon <laughs> the rest of them all. I'll have to go into the barrel draw for, for it, mate. That's that's right. Uh,
0: what does the future hold for hopper mate? What does the future hold? Oh, look, mate, I'll continue with lifeguarding at the moment. Um, You're only as good as your body holds up to do the the lifeguard job and I'm probably lucky I've got a fair bit of admin side of things too in my role now that I'm not on the beach all the time. But, you know, looking to the future, I I think it's one, doing the podcast, building the podcast. Also, Float to Survive, I think that's something that I'd like to take worldwide. I think that's something that can be international and I think we can reduce drownings. All around the world. I mean, looking at the stats in Bangladesh, they have 80,000 drownings a year, and 48% of those drownings are under five year olds. So I think if uh, we can build on what we're doing now here in Australia and, and take that overseas, and I think we could have a massive a- effect, especially in the third world countries where there's a lot of drowning that people don't hear about. No one hears about it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a preventable. That's the one thing I suppose that gets me the most. It's, it's preventable. Drowning is preventable. It's just a matter of giving people the knowledge and experience on on what to do and not to panic. So, if I can go into my retiring years and and, and do that full time, would be probably a goal that I've got set for for future over the next five to ten years. Well, mate, well, you know that's
1: uh, that's a great vision, and and I really you know look forward to watching that closely. I'll probably be doing a little bit of stalking on you on that one and see how you are <laughs> going, mate. Now your family, and your beautiful kids, Lauren and Georgia. How are they going?
0: Yeah, they're going good. They're older now. Um, Lauren's turned twenty five uh, this year. Um, Georgia's turned twenty one, so they're doing well. The Georgia's at the working for a uh, daycare. They're at Four Clues, and Lauren's managing the Adair's store. It's a bed linen store at Westfields at Bonner Junction, so she's doing well. And so yeah, mate, they you know good kids. Um, always tough bringing girls through as teenagers in the eastern suburbs. So uh, they sort of got through that. But uh, the older one's now settling down a bit, turned 25. But the younger one's still a bit bit nutty and uh, likes going out partying a bit. So we've still got a, a bit of work to do with her to, to get her through another few years. But, yeah, I mean, all in all, it's it's been great, you know. Um, still seem a, a bit here and there. So it's uh, – although that, that at that age now, they don't want to know uh, – I don't know what Dad's
1: doing. That's oh, not cool. Dad's not cool until you know their hearts get broken, <laughs> or you, they'll come home and say, "Dad, you were right," you know, about blokes and all that sort of stuff. But it's yeah, all ahead of me, mate. I, think, yeah. I, I guess, um, yeah. you know, we've been at this for an hour and and twenty now, mate. So I guess I better wrap it up. But um, it's been an absolute honour to to have this um, opportunity to take your role up and and interview you. And that, as you know, in the boot shack, there's always that fun five facts at the end of it so we're gonna i'm gonna throw them at you at you and we're gonna start (laughs) them right now and wrap it up so uh tell me your
0: favorite part of the world uh favorite part of the world would be hawaii i think that's um i went there in the when i was younger early sort of in the mid 90s and um always followed the big wave surfing which that was predominantly the the big wave surfing area back in those days and Pipeline and, and Sunset Beach and, and Waimea Bay. So, yeah, I think um, Hawaii is one of my
1: favourite Right, mate. Well, you we're all on the same page there.
0: What about your favourite movie? Favourite movie is, uh, well, Big Wednesday. Again, a surfing movie, but I thought it was just uh, a great movie going back to, I think it was the 60s, 70s, I think it was back in those days. And I could sit and watch that every week. I think it's probably the only movie I could watch over and over. I remember Gary Busi in that. There you go, um, mate. Your proudest life moment? Oh, it's probably obviously the kids. Having kids is, is is quite a good experience in your life. But then, probably, I think bringing someone back to life from from the, the no breathing, no pulse in front of you, and then you can get them back where they can live, uh, you know, a longer life and. I think a mate of mine. I revived one of a mate of mine's father in the car park at Bondi years ago, way before the show, and um he's still alive to today. and And a funny story that he's congratulating me every time I see him. And when I was flying overseas recently, he happened to be at the in the lounge at the airport, and um came up to me. and His his current wife and his kids were there, and they hadn't met me before. He goes, "I oh, just the That's the guy that revived me probably now over 20 years ago. And um, it's sort of something like you said before, I forget all about that stuff. And then I sat down having a beer, looking over, thinking, well, geez, he's there with his younger family now. I think he's on about his second or third marriage. But I thought if I didn't revive him 20 years ago, he probably wouldn't have that younger family now and, and, and probably wouldn't be sitting over there alive and, and continuing his life. So, I mean, you know, when you sit back and think of it like that, it, it's, it's an amazing thing that we can do, but I suppose I've done it for so long and, and, and so many that I probably take it too much for granted and probably should sit back and, and see what the achievements have been.
1: Mate on that, what you've done, um, it's like a, a doctor who saves a life, you know, in an operation or and the person's come brought back and then they go on to live a life, what you've done in saving another's life is you've given their family someone back and you've also, in the case of your mate, created the opportunity for him to have children which have gone on to grow. Now, i give giving an example on how that works and this is what you are subconsciously, you probably don't even know you're doing it, but the... My great-grandfather was killed in World War One, but luckily he'd had my grandfather because if he hadn't had my grandfather, there would be none of us. We wouldn't even be having this conversation. So that's the sliding doors effect. So you've given the gift of life to all these people all around the place, everywhere, mate. So, you know, it's something that is very rare and unique and there's only a very small number of people like you that have been able to do that. So, you know, on behalf of everyone that's walking the earth, that probably wouldn't have been, mate, Everyone knows Hoppo a hell of a lot of of gratitude and, you know, he's very lucky. We're very lucky to have Hoppo. Right, mate, here's the funny one. Here's the funny one. Yeah. With your <laughs> favorite celebrity crush can be male, can be female, yeah. doesn't matter, mate. Favorite celebrity crush.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I suppose looking back, I mean, when I was younger, a teenager, it was always Kylie Minogue. I was, I was into Kylie Minogue. As a teenager, and then probably later on in the Baywatch era, it was, you know, Pamela Anderson, I suppose, running around the beaches, and that was probably a, yeah, a, a, a crush I had back then.
1: Mate, um, those two people are so eighties and nineties, but you're off the hook because I normally, <laughs> gonna, you know, that's eighties and nineties, and then stick my finger in my throat and try and vomit because. You know, most of the ones that pop up with it. But, but Kylie and both Pemi are still going and they're doing lots of good things and, you know, their careers have just blossomed. So, you know, good picks. Very good. We'll leave it on that note and, and the memories. And uh, I can't thank you enough. What a, what a wonderful man you are and it's been an absolute honour and pleasure. And thank you for letting me interview the mighty
0: Hoppo. Right, uh, thanks, Goro, for you know, coming to Beat Shack, mate, and hosting this week. Getting the info out of me, so mate, it's a pleasure and uh, we'll have to catch up soon. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week we've got back in the uh, beach shack is Chapo. Hello, Chapo. G'day, mate. Now, everyone's pretty competitive down there at the beach as lifeguards and uh, we do do our annual race uh each year and you and Reedy have had a bit of a battle over the years so tell us a bit about that
2: yeah look you know I've I met Reedy 20 years ago and I wasn't real sure about him at the start to tell you the truth you know I'd see him out at the footy and he <laughs> was always like "Ah, oh, it's always a little bit of a ah, oh, just get around and like love the famous people you know he bit the footy or wherever he was and he was a garbo at this stage, so he kind of had that humble humbleness about him, but he just kind of got around like, I don't know, like when I say I wasn't sure, I like the bloke, but um, I wasn't that sure about him. And then he he rocks up at, at the, I suppose the tryouts you'd call them, lifeguard tryouts, and he's there he is, this blonde, cocky little kid that's, you know, not really... A waterman at this stage of his career, and he's um kind of, you know, Garbo wants to become a lifeguard, and you know that cockiness in him got him on, and you know, and then from then we we kind of forged a really, really great relationship. You know, this kind of cocky, blonde kid from Bondi or Vaucluse, wherever he's from, he um he's working alongside me, and you know we're starting to enjoy what you know you. You never really know what lifeguarding's going to be like and then you're doing all these, you know, rescues and I've spoken about previously and um, you just forge these really great relationships so this cocky guy that I wasn't so sure of becomes like a really good mate of mine and, um, yeah, and just lucky to kind of have, you know, he does some amazing things these days. He's just such a go-getter and that cockiness has just keeps getting bigger and bigger and growing and, you know, these days he's off. But I think he's in Japan at the moment with his daughter running a marathon, and I think he's the Tokyo Marathon, and these are the things he does. He gets on a plane, and you know he's commentating, and he's just um, made a real great career for himself. And you know it's it's good to call him a call him a good mate of mine now. Like we've worked together for twenty years, and we kind of you know have this cool rivalry when it comes to fitness because you know, I don't think I'd train all that hard and feel like I have some ability. Whereas he, on the other hand, kind of had no ability, but trains the house down and, you know, is a fantastic runner. So we just kind of, we're very different. Let's just say that now approach to life. And that kind of culminates in this kind of rivalry that we've kind of had on going down with our lifeguard challenge, which comes around once every year, which, you know, I put a bit of effort to make sure it keeps going because it's a pretty good tradition and it goes back 20, 30, I don't know, 30 years at least. And, um, yeah, we just basically hit it off because we are kind of equal in ability. His running skills kind of go downhill in the water and I kind of pick up a little bit in the water, but he's, you know, he's done a lot of training and this year in particular, he I went in the board paddle with him and I'm like, yep, got him here, you know. I just kind of done the run, swim, and you know, like I kind of come out of the water, which I'm generally a little bit far behind him at this stage because he's such a great runner. Um, and I'm thinking, I've oh, just got the board paddle back to Bondi to go, and I, you know, I'm the I'm the surfer guy, and he's the runner guy, and he's the kind of weaker weaker of the two of us in the ocean. And we jump on the boards together, and bloody beats me this year. So.
0: Yeah. So what's the score now? What's the score you reckon over the years? You, have, you, have you kept the tally? Well, you haven't really kept the tally,
2: but I I've, he's come over the top of me of late. But it's kind of like he's kind of consistently just beating me and then I'll get one back. But he hasn't had the win yet. I've got the W next to my name. So that kind of speaks volumes. <laughs> so it's kind of, <laughs> you know, it's more or less he he will um not really kind of, I can lose every single one and still have that against my name the W so yeah look it's it's it was you know like there was a time there where it was a little bit more fierce but now like oh we, I, I think we're both getting to that point where we just want to get through the thing so yeah it's just good to catch up
0: yeah no, it's a great race you do well organizing it every year and getting everyone uh motivated to do it because it's not an easy uh, feat to get all the lifeguards in one spot at one time.
2: No, no, no. And, like, if this year's any um, anything to go by, it's, it's in good hands. All the boys showed up this year and, um, yeah, it kind of catches you off guard what it means to everyone at the end. Like, it's just this great camaraderie when we're all finished and um, everyone doesn't leave anything in the tank, so to speak. You know, they'll – They'll rock up, kind of just laughing and grinning, and you know, like you said, people don't see each other all the time, and it's a bit of a catch up. And then when your handicap gets read out, you know, it's you know, everyone wants, you know, they're not happy there's, or whatever. There's
0: always a there's
2: always a blow up. <laughs> there's always, there's always a, a blow up with the handicap. <laughs> there's always a blow up, and and um but and anyway, when they they go, that's just they. They don't, buddy. Stop. Everyone just goes so hard, myself included. I come back and I'm gassed. So, you know, it's um, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a good thing, serious thing.
0: Yeah, it's a great it's a great event, and um, it's good to keep the tradition going. Taylor, totally. uh, Chapo, it's uh, great, mate. See you again in the beach shack. I'll uh, we'll catch you down the beach. Perfect. <laughs> now it's time. To have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbags from Peter and he's from Melbourne. Are you guys working over the Easter weekend? Yeah, well, Peter, uh, I have been working the weekend. I worked on the uh, Good Friday and also worked on Monday, Easter Monday. So got to have Saturday and Sunday off though. So not too bad, two days off out of the weekend uh, it was pretty good so mate thanks for your uh, letter and i'll catch everybody again next week thanks everyone for listening remember to subscribe to life's a beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions comments or follow us on our social media channels which you can find in our show notes that's it for today beach fans stay safe and swim between the flags.